Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Two names that are probably not household names, but they should be. Leah Sharibu and Asia Bibi. Who are they? Just over a year ago, maybe a little bit longer than that, I can't remember exactly, about a, a, almost 100 uh, schoolgirls from Nigeria were captured by the Boko Haram. Almost all of them, I think, have been set free, except one. Her name is Leah Sharibu. She's 15 years old, and she refuses to recant her faith in Jesus Christ. For that, she may die. Asia Baby is a mother of five children, Christian woman, Imprisoned since 2010 in Pakistan on an ancient blasphemy law, all her appeals have failed and her fate now rests in the hands of the Supreme Court justices, three of them, who are now being threatened by radical crowds outside, threatening them with violence if they do not hang her. These are two of literally millions of Christians around the world who face persecution on a daily basis, all the way from harassment to martyrdom. Next week, you not only get an hour's break from your sleep, next Sunday is the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. You may want to just uh, check out idop.com and see what's happening in the world around. Closer to home, we of course do not face that radical degrees of persecution. But certainly in our schools, in our universities, campuses, and in some areas of work, Christians are under increasing pressure, often openly ridiculed even by those in authority like professors and others. When you add to this external pressure, many of the challenges in life that come because God isn't showing up the way we want him to. The temptation to walk out on God while still maintaining some kind of an external uh, commitment, or walk out on them altogether, increases in power and temptation. In a crowd this large, there are probably single people who have desired to meet a godly man or a godly woman who's a follower of Jesus and serve God together, but it hasn't happened. And after a period of waiting, may want to consider other, other options, they might say. Perhaps lower my standards a bit. Maybe look for a relationship outside of marriage. And for those who are married, there might be one or two who have discovered that it is a far cry, far more challenging than the kind of rosy picture of unbroken bliss that seems to seduce so many of us before we get married. And so maybe there's a temptation to check, check out, pull back, perhaps daydream about meeting the ideal soulmate. Maybe even run across somebody at work or in the church. It happens quite a lot. Perhaps it's uh, your work situation. Where the job that you wanted, the promotion hasn't come along with it, the financial security and blessings. Or maybe the, the significance, the acceptance that comes from privileged positions at work. And after a period of waiting, there's a temptation to want to take things into your own hands to maybe immerse yourself and adopt some of the cutthroat practices and backstabbing and gossiping that characterize so much of the workplace.
Perhaps it is a lack of uh, breaking into friendship circles and acceptance. I know at least one young adult today whose downward slide away from God began because he could not find a friend in high school. I know of one international worker who's working in a very difficult part of this world who prayed for the healing of a child that was sick and that child died. God didn't come through. And now she's finding it difficult to pray at all which is a particular challenge given the kind of ministry that God has called them to do. So when you put the internal tensions and the external tensions together, as I said, the temptation to check out on God, either internally or totally, increases in power and attraction. Is there a single message from Scripture that can come and speak to that full spectrum of human need? There is, and we've come to that in our study of the book of Daniel. But first, a quick background, either for those of you who are not here for the first studies of the first two chapters or just by way of recollection. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, the dominant world power at that time, has invaded Judah, the southern kingdom of Judah, and has taken the people away captive, leaving just some of the poorest in the land to remain there. Many of these exiles were teenagers. Daniel was probably a teenager at that point. He, along with a few others, some of the sharpest minds were isolated by the Babylonians. They did this regularly and trained them in the wisdom, the culture, the language of Babylon so that they would become the king's influential advisors. Daniel particularly came to the king's attention. And he was considered among the wise men of the, the kingdom. And in chapter 2, we read the story of a dream that the king had of a statue whose head was made of gold and the rest of the statue of other material. And he and his wise men couldn't interpret what this was. And so the king in his fury was going to sentence them all to death. Well, this came to Daniel's attention. He was one of the wise men. And God gave Daniel the wisdom to interpret that statue. The head of gold represented Nebuchadnezzar, the present power. And the rest would be other powers and kingdoms that would follow him. Nebuchadnezzar was totally impressed and blown away by Daniel's wisdom. And so he was elevated governor of all of Babylon, head of the wise men. And at his request, three other friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego by name, were also elevated to positions of influence. That sets the stage for what happens in chapter 3. Then came King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, that's one and a half times 60, 90 feet, and its breadth, six cubits. Now he made the whole image of gold, probably because in the dream, only the head was of gold, and so this was his visually way of communicating to everybody, mostly to convince himself that his kingdom was not going to be succeeded by other kingdoms. It was going to be a permanent kingdom. Then King Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the temple, of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. These were all the political who's who. It was a very clear show of power before all the power brokers in society, who was really king? That was himself. And then the herald proclaims, you are commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Now music, what was that doing there? Alan Bloom, in his book, The Closing of the American Mind, many years ago, talked about the power of music, and he said, music has the power to authenticate every activity that it accompanies. Music has the power to legitimize and authenticate every activity that it accompanies. 
It happens in our worship service as we sing about the greatness of Jesus' name. It, it makes the truth that we sing more believable. In this case, it happens to be true. And so his magnificent statue that's visual, all the politi political hoo-hoo's gathered together, is lent further credence with the music, all these various kinds of music, to lend credence to what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. But he's also aware of the fact that there might be some people for whom those might not be enough. And so we read these words. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. So the, so the image is there. The political powers are there. Music is there. But just in case that's not enough, if you don't worship, you're heading to the fiery furnace. That's the situation. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in. Now you can imagine the test. It was the ultimate test of loyalty to their God. They could easily have rationalized. I mean, this is just a hunk of stone. Didn't the prophet Isaiah, to whom they had access to, would say, oh, you images, do something good or bad. He mocked them. They're just hunks of stone. They could easily have said, well, this is not a God. Why should we throw away this incredible position of influence and power that we have in this kingdom? Isn't it much better to serve our God by remaining alive so we can be witnessing to these Babylonians, which they already were, I guess, by their lifestyle? They could easily have rationalized all of that. But, but look at the challenge that Nebuchadnezzar put before them. Nebuchadnezzar specifically said to them, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. This is the second time. He did not, when, when these three people did not bow down, because, you see, to bow down would be to say to everybody around them what they thought of their God. And Nebuchadnezzar has specifically said to them, if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God that will deliver you out of my hands? He didn't even do what the other Near Eastern monarchs would say, who is the God that is able to deliver you out of our God's hands? He said, no, who is the God that can deliver you out of my hands? He had elevated himself to a status of God. Now for these three men... To rationalize their way and to bow down would be to declare to all the people, our God is not able to deliver us from Nebuchadnezzar's hands. It was the ultimate values clarification exercise and test. Several years ago, an international worker from our church was diagnosed with breast cancer. She's fine now, but during the time that followed that, she wrote some of the most beautiful, penetrating, insightful prayer letters. She called it her values clarification exercise. <laughs> You see, when life itself is on the line, it, it has an amazing power to clarify what matters in life. And so that was the situation that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego found themselves in. And so they make this declaration. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, if this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. So you want to know who's going to deliver us from your hand? Our king is able to do that. Our God is able to do it. And then comes these staggering words, but if not. <laughs> but if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Our God is able. That's what we want to declare to all of you. But even if the God who is able chooses for whatever reason not to do so, not to deliver us, even though he's able, we will not worship you, O king. We will not worship these gods. We will worship the living God. Nebuchadnezzar was staggered. 
What kind of a faith was this that even took into account the fact that their faith might not be answered in visible reality? He was also incredibly angered because here he was trying to prove to himself that his power was going to last after him in making the whole statue of gold. And these three men, captives after all from an exile country, were showing him that you don't even have power over us right now, let alone in the future. And so they were thrown into the fire. Now what happens there is next week's message. As Pastor John said, your job is to get them there, I'll get them out. (laughs) (laughs) But I want to stop there and I want to ask you a question. How do we build a bridge from this story that happened 2,500 years ago to where you and I are today in a country where we're very different than Babylon and its situations? Specifically, what does this amazing declaration by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have to teach us? My God is able, but if not. It clarifies for us, more than anything else, the true nature of worship. See, if we ask most Christians what they think of when we hear the word worship, we think about what happens on Sunday mornings. And which is worship, we call it a worship service. And even more to the point, we think of it in terms of the songs that we sing during the worship service, which we have sung, and it is worship. But it's very narrow in its understanding. This is revealed by comments that I've often heard in my life as a pastor, as a pastor for 36 years. Why hear statements like, hey, how was the service? Oh, the preaching was bad, but the worship was great, you know. Or the other way around, maybe. What do those statements betray? They betray for us that we tend to think of worship very narrowly in terms of the singing part of a worship service. Or the worship service, and that's it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's declaration expands our understanding of worship way beyond that. It has to do with what we think about God And the value that we place on him compared to everything else that is promised for us or or that we believe is necessary for life to become meaningful. Because that's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said. They said, what we think of our God is more important for us to let you know than to hang on to all the privileges and and the power and the influence that our position can give us. Yes, he's more valuable to us even than life itself. And so I kind of crafted this definition of worship to help us. I'll read it through a couple of times so it sinks in. What is worship? It is a conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is our ultimate good and what he gives us matters more than anything else that we might define as essential for a meaningful life. Can I read that again? Worship is a conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is our ultimate good and what he gives us matters more than anything else that we might define as essential for a meaningful life. That's why we can say our God is able, but if not. So, taking you back to some of the situations that I painted earlier on, for that single person who has not yet found their mate, worship is to say, 
my God is able to bring such a person into my life at the right time. But until then, or but if not, I will not take a shortcut. I will not settle for sex outside of marriage. I will not lower my standards to marry somebody who doesn't share my faith. Instead, I will let every unmet desire drive me to Jesus. And in the meantime, I will harness the advantages of being single to drive his kingdom deeper into my soul and further out. For that married person who for various reasons has become disillusioned and faces the temptation to check out either emotionally or literally. Worship is to say, my God is able to change my house and heal my marriage. But if not, I will not check out. And by the way, when I'm talking about this, is not an advice on specific marriages where there's abuse involved and things like that. This is not a counseling session. It's a sermon. And so you may need to go to people for those kind of situations. I'm trying to drive home a principle for you. And worship says, but if not, but if not, I will still be the best spouse that I can be. I will still love my spouse the way I'm, Jesus told me to love. And in the meantime, if God has blessed us with children, I will walk before them in such a way that I will transmit my faith to that next generation. And I will use whatever gifts God has given to me to deepen his life in me and further the kingdom. For that person who's disillusioned in the job situation faces the temptation to take matters into their own hands. Worship is to say, my God is able to get me the job, the promotion, the financial recognition and everything that I want when and if he wants that to give it to me. But if not, but if not, I will still look to him to satisfy the true needs that I have financially and for the significance and the purpose in life that I have, might have attached to this job or this promotion, I will trust that he is able to give me something even better. In the meantime, I will pray for those people, even the ones who may be responsible for stymieing my progress, and I will in Jesus' name bless the people that I'm working with and extend the kingdom into their lives. These and other such declarations are what constitutes worship and what happens on Sunday morning should equip us to live that way. If you want to know what a worship service is, really like, if it is truly successful, and by worship I mean from the prayer to the singing to the preaching to the benediction, does it send the people out with a deeper conviction like that or not? That's the real measure of the success of a worship service or a worship encounter. You're tracking with me so far? Worship is a conviction that shapes all of life's choices so as to declare to everyone who might be aware that God is our ultimate good and what he gives us matters more than anything else that we might define as essential for a meaningful life. That's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's message to us. Now, now that we understand the essence of their declaration, now that we have built the bridges from there to our life situation, the next question is, where did they get this faith from? We need to know that too, right? It's one thing to know what it is. another thing to know how to live it. Where did they get this message? This, they had two, two things were very clear. They had an experiential knowledge of the greatness of God that was independent of circumstances, and they were absolutely convinced who was in charge in the face of all the sham show of power the visible statue that was 90 feet high, this massive array of politicians, this amazing music and an orchestra that was unbeatable, and the threat of that burning furnace. Who was in charge? <laughs> they knew. It was not Nebuchadnezzar. 
It was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Moses, the God of David, the God of Elijah, the God of Elisha, the God of Isaiah, the God of Jeremiah. Yahweh was in charge. That was a conviction that sustained them. And what built that conviction? We don't know, but there's a clue. For, Daniel 3 doesn't tell us, but the book of Daniel has a couple of important clues. If you read on ahead, or when you get to Daniel 9, if that's part of the series that you're going through, you will find that chapter 9 opens with Daniel reading the book of Jeremiah, or the scroll of Jeremiah. They weren't books in those days. And then as a result of that, he prays. And if you look at his prayer in Daniel chapter 9, it is shaped to a large extent by one of Isaiah's prayers, in I think in the 63rd or 64th chapter of Isaiah. So it's quite clear, most likely, that Daniel and his friends therefore had access to the scrolls of Isaiah and Jeremiah. And it's not hard for us to imagine how those sweeping declarations in Isaiah especially of the awesomeness of Yahweh, of his absolute sovereignty over the nations, of his unthwartable plans for the nations, and his promises of his presence with his people in the midst of exile. It's not hard to believe how those would have built this kind of a faith in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What if from the time of their exile, these young men had saturated themselves by meditating on the word of God? Because those scrolls were accessible and they were particularly, especially Isaiah 40 to 66, was written specifically with the condition of the exile and the post-exilic community later in mind. And Jeremiah, of course, was the uniquely the prophet of the exile who not only talked to the people about the coming exile, but was exiled with them and traveled with them. Let me read for you some texts from Isaiah that might have functioned in this way. And as I read them, I want you to join Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego 2,500 years ago. I want you to let this word of God build faith within your heart that you might bring it into the particular situations where you are in. And I've given you some as a illustrative examples. You might have others. Where exactly that same choice is put before you. To be able to say, my God is able, but if not, I will not check out. I will not take a shortcut. I will not withdraw. I will not pull back. I will keep on worshiping him. Listen as I read. And they, these ones won't be on the screen for you. By the way, up till the invention of the printing press in about 1500 AD, for the 1500 years of the New Testament church and a couple of millennia before that for God's people, most of them encounter the word of God by having it read. So we're not, good at, we're not a culture that's good at listening because we do so much more of reading and are visually oriented. But listen carefully. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purpose, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. And then this promise that must be so tailor-made for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Because you are precious in my sight and honored, and I love you, I give people in return for you, nations in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. And then this one. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus, of course, was the Medo-Persian king that followed Babylon. I am the Lord and there is no other. Beside me there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, so that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. And then one more. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. It is texts like these, meditated upon, that slowly, layer by layer, worked in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and can do the same thing for you and for me. You see, this is just a small portion from Isaiah that I read for you, four or five passages. In the Bible reading program that I follow every year from September 8th to just about October 31st, it takes me through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And the switch over from Isaiah to Jeremiah happens on October 2nd, which is my birthday. So every year I get to spend the month before my birthday reading in Isaiah and the month immediately after reading in Jeremiah. It just happened to be a perfect preparation for preaching this message on Daniel. See, it is when working through the Bible becomes a settled habit and part of our lives that we will keep on encountering this glory of God from many different angles, in the history books, in the prophetic books, in the poetical books, in the apocalyptic literature, and in all the teaching sections. In fact, this multifaceted glory of God finding its final fulfillment in the revelation of the God in the person of Jesus is in fact the heart of the gospel. I mean, again, just like worship, we sometimes get the gospel wrong. Well, what is the gospel? Most of us probably in an evangelical tradition would say, well, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. I, I, I prayed the sinner's prayer. Now I'm going to heaven. It's true, but it's a very, very tiny slice of it. What is the essence of the gospel? Look at the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In their case, in the case of those who are unbelievers, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light. Notice, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. That's the gospel. The gospel is the good news of the glory of Jesus, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And then notice this, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is the gospel. The gospel is the gospel of the glory of God, finding its perfect and final fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. If we're going to build a God is able but if not kind of faith in all of those life situations that will keep us worshiping him and not pulling back, we're going to need this steady immersion 
in this book that from cover to cover has one grand subject, the glory of God the Father and the glory of his son Jesus. Now, reading and understanding is one thing. And it's important. But it's another thing altogether for a heart to be gripped by that so that in the heat of the furnace we say, but if not. I mean, even the passage I read for you from 2 Corinthians tells us that how did we come to understand the gospel? God commanded the light to shine in our hearts. And we sang about the darkness being dispersed on the light a few moments ago. It takes nothing less than the revelatory work of the Holy Spirit to cause us to see with the eyes of our heart what we see with our physical eyes when we're reading God's Word. And so this immersion in God's Word needs to be accomplished, uh, needs to be accompanied by and set in the context of prayer. And one of the things I've become increasingly convinced of over the last decade or so, maybe a little bit longer than that, is that there is one prayer that is absolutely foundational. And we, will, we will pray automatically a whole lot of other prayers because of, they are related to needs in our own lives, our children's lives and whatnot. But the foundational prayer that needs to accompany this immersion in Scripture is Moses' prayer, show me your glory. Because the purpose of this text is the glory of God the Father finding its perfection in Jesus. We need to see that glory. And we need revelation to see it well. And so we pray, show me your glory. Moses prayed that prayer first. And what was amazing is how much glory Moses had already seen by that time. He had already encountered the glory of Yahweh in the burning bush. The bush that was on fire but didn't burn. He had seen God's glory in the miracle of throwing down a shepherd's rod and it becoming a snake and then picking up that snake and becoming a rod again. He had put his hand inside his cloak and it came out leprous. He put his hand back in and it came out clean. He'd, he'd seen the glory of God in the 10 miracles, 10 plagues that were sent upon this powerful kingdom of Egypt to reduce them to helplessness so they set God's people free. He saw the glory of God in the opening of the Red Sea to allow the people to pass by and the closing of the Red Sea to swallow up Pharaoh's army. He had seen the glory of God descend upon Mount Sinai in smoke and heard the voice of God speaking the law of God. He had seen manna from heaven. He had seen the glory of God in the pillar of cloud that led them at day and the pillar of fire that protected them at night. Well, he's seen more glory by that time than you and I will ever see in our lives. And yet he says, show me your glory. Why? Because Moses understood that yesterday's encounter with glory wasn't enough for today's responsibilities. He needed an ongoing, continual, fresh revelation of the glory of God to keep on doing what God had called him to do, which in this case was to lead the people out from bondage into the promised land. So you, you and I need a continual revelation of this glory. And so, so we read and we pray, show me your glory. Now, something even more remarkable. Near the end of his life, Moses preached his last sermon in the book of Deuteronomy. And near the end of the book of Deuteronomy, he says something remarkable. He says, Lord, I've just begun to see your greatness. All these things that I've laid out for you and then many more in the wilderness, Moses says, I've just begun. I've just begun to see your greatness. Well, if this is the beginning of greatness, what is the end of greatness? <laughs> Moses didn't have a clue, but you and I do because we live much further down in redemptive history. And if you read the rest of the Old Testament, you will find that after, these, after the exile was over, just like it was promised, and then... The, a small group of people come back 
to the promised land. They rebuild the temple. It isn't a very spectacular temple. Kind of looks chintzy compared to the Solomon's magnificent temple that was destroyed. In fact, some of the old timers were weeping and saying, oh, what is this? This is nothing. The prophet Haggai says to them, does it look like nothing to you? He said, I promise you the glory of this temple is going to be greater than the former glory. Really, how can that be? Look, it's so pathetic compared to that building. But of course, they didn't understand what glory was being talked about. But you and I do, because when we read John's gospel, what do we read? (laughs) The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. Uh, This time, it wasn't smoke. It wasn't fire. It wasn't just a voice. It wasn't a theophany. It was God himself incarnate in human flesh coming into his temple. And it says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So when we pray, show me your glory, it is this glory that we're moving towards. Not only God's incredible greater, but but this fusion, this fusion of truth and grace. Majesty and mercy. The glory of the lion and the meekness of the lamb. All part of this unbelievable glory of Jesus. That's what enables us to say, my God is able, that's lion glory. But if not, that's lamb glory. (laughs) My God is able, that is majesty. But if not, that's meekness. My God is able, that's truth. But if not, grace. You see how it works together? This is the glory of Jesus. He's both lion and he's lamb. We sing those majestic songs that we sang earlier on. Such a beautiful choice of songs for today. My God is able. But if not, we'll still keep worshiping. So, read his word to see his glory. See his glory in the word. Seek his glory in prayer as you read, saying, Lord, show me your glory. Then, then increasingly, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you will prefer his glory when the choice and the forks in the road are set before you, and you will proclaim that glory in witness like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. See his glory in the word, Seek his glory in prayer, then you will prefer his glory in obedience and you will proclaim that glory in the word. One last observation with that, we're finished. Some of you, and maybe this is particularly an old timer's problem, and I can speak to you guys because that's where I am. Maybe you're sitting there saying to me, you know, Sundar, Things are actually going quite well with me. I'm, I'm happily single or happily married. Um, I've been going well with me. My job has always been a satisfying job. I get plenty of significance from it. Financially, we're doing okay. So, you know, I, ca- I kind of find it hard. Where am I going to get the motivation and the energy to, to get engaged with God's glory like you're telling me? To? And besides, I don't really anticipate being in this kind of troubling situation. I don't have that many years left. Can I say something to you? If any of you are thinking like that, First of all, you will never know when life will precipitate you into a situation where you will be required to say, but if not. What happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego the day before Nebuchadnezzar decided to pull the stunt? They were riding high. They had privileged positions in society. They were the head of the wise men. Everybody looked up to them. Life was going beautifully. All of a sudden, Daniel had to interpret this dream and they were in trouble. It came out of them from nowhere. So there's no room for casualness at all. You'll never know what life will bring. But secondly, even if it is so that you might be right, 
that you personally are never going to be in this kind of a situation. What about our sons and daughters? What about our grandchildren? I have six of them aged from 20 all the way to nine. As I told you already, they are facing a much more hostile society than it was when we were their age. Almost certainly they're going to be facing many more. They already are, some of them in university, facing ridicule, facing mockery, facing ostracization, professional obstacles because they are followers of Jesus. One of the prayers that I pray regularly and consistently for my grandchildren is, Lord, may they seek your glory. May they see your glory in the word and may they seek your glory in prayer so that they will prefer your glory when there's a fork in the road in their lives and they will proclaim your glory fearlessly. And, and there's not much point praying that way if I don't back it up with my example. There's another generation that you and I have to live for. The, two, the story of two kings in the Bible one you don't want to be like and one you very much want to be like and with that I'm finished. Hezekiah was the first king. He was a good king, actually. He did some good reforms in the country. The prophets speak well of him. But near the end of his life, or at some point in his life, there was a delegation from, Bab from Medo-Persia. That was going to be the next kingdom that was going to take over. Uh, and uh, he showed them all the treasures that he had. Now, we're not quite sure what the significance of that was, but the prophet Isaiah interpreted that as him probably telegraphing that, hey, if I ever need your help politically, they made political alliances in those days all the time. Yeah, I have enough money to pay you tribute. And Isaiah says this to him. Behold, the days are coming, says to Hezekiah, when all that is in your house shall be carried to Babylon. And some of your own sons shall be taken away and they shall become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Man, what an indicting indictment. upon his successors. But his response is unbelievable. He said, then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, why not? If there will be peace and security in my days. Now, I couldn't believe it. Here was a man who was being told, good king though he was, that your, your, your descendants are headed for disaster in Babylon. He says, hey, it's not going to happen in my lifetime, so it's okay, I guess. I hope we're never like him. But there was another king, Josiah, Hezekiah's grandson. And when Hezekiah and when Josiah found that the temple had been in disrepair, so he ordered all the people to fix the temple and clean it up, they found a copy of the book of the law, most likely the book of Deuteronomy. And when it was read to the king, he, he tore his heart. He tore his robes in despair. He was convicted of all the ways his forefathers had disobeyed God. And so he sends off to a local prophetess to say, what should I do? And this prophetess comes back with a word to him very similar to that of Isaiah's to Hezekiah. And she basically says, tell this man, because he humbled himself before God, everything is going to be okay with him. But the, it is too late to save the country. Now, isn't it amazing? Josiah could have done exactly what Hezekiah said. Okay, it's going to be okay in my time. Why worry? No, that's not what he said. Look what he does. He said, and the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. 
And the king stood in this peace place and made a covenant before the Lord to keep his commandments with all his heart and all his soul. And then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin join in it. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their father. Now he said, it doesn't matter if it's okay with me. I care about the generation that is coming after me. And so I will seek God with all of my heart until I drop dead for their sake. So may it never be said of us, those few of us who might think that everything's going to be okay with us, that we were like Hezekiah, let us instead be like Josiah. Then we will join the company of those who says, my God is able, but if not. I want to end this message by specifically focusing on the next generations. I want to have everybody who's under 25 stand up. You're the ones that are going to be facing. I want to bless you. I want to give you a blessing. If you're under 25, just stand up. And if you're under 25 in your spirit, you can stand up too. Okay. Just stand up. Wherever you are, and up there, I can't see you because of the lights, but I know you guys were leaning over the balcony there. And the rest of you, just stretch out your hand towards them, wherever you are. Okay, we're going to bless you. And you know, I want to bless you, first of all. There are some of you here who, because of your background, have struggled with shame, a sense of shame all your life. If there's anybody like that, I want to neutralize that shame. We sang about that earlier. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to neutralize the power of shame. You have nothing to be ashamed of anymore. Jesus loves you. Jesus glories in you. And Jesus has an amazing destiny for you. And I want to release within you the power to believe that in spite of every appearance to the contrary, you have a role to play in the generations to come. I want to bless you with courage. And I want to bless you with faith to believe that you are going to be able to stand up like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you have the power and the capacity within you because of Jesus in you to be able to say, my God is able, but if not, I will not worship anybody but Jesus. I want to bless you with an increasing understanding of the glory of God the Father in Jesus the Son. Go in Jesus' name and change the world, okay? God bless you. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.